Hello and welcome to this episode of Scotland Matters, the Scottish Land and Estates podcast. I'm Carmen McPherson, Membership Communications Manager at SLE. In this episode, you'll hear our Senior Policy Advisor on Agriculture and Climate Change, Eleanor Kay, in conversation with Dr Callum Brown, Co-Chief Scientist at Highland Rewilding. In his role as a land system scientist, Callum is interested in how land management affects ecosystems and societies. In this episode, expect to find out what was the inspiration behind Highlands Rewilding, the different estates managed by Highlands Rewilding and the varied approaches taken to maintaining them, and the importance of sharing information and community involvement. Now, let's hear from Eleanor and Callum. So let's sort of start with the basics. Could you tell me a bit about Highlands Rewilding and what sort of inspired it to start? Yeah, sure. It was started by Jeremy Leggett, who's the CEO of the company. And um, he had spent years as an academic and then working for Greenpeace. And then he started his own solar power company, which he ran for several years before selling that on to Statcraft. And then he was keen to do something else to tackle the climate and biodiversity crises and thought that working in land restoration was a really important area to to be active in. And so he um, bought the Bungoit estate near Loch Ness in 2021. And um, from there, he set up Highlands Rewilding as a company to manage land for rewilding, for nature restoration, um, and to do it in such a way that it becomes economically viable and demonstrably beneficial for others to do similar things as well. That sounds like a, a fascinating kind of beginning of Highlands Rewilding. How long ago was it started? In 2021. Oh, so it's been a, it's been a it's long been... journey to get to, to get to where we are now. It's been, yeah, long in some ways, also quite short. It's, you know, the time is tight to achieve the things that we want to achieve. And there's a, a lot to do, a lot to learn along the way. So it's, um, it is taking place over years, but we could always do with more time, of course. What's the model of Highlands Rewilding? I know obviously it's very focused on on sort of natural capital research and, and, and science-led data collection, but what is the what's the model? The model is, as you say, it is focused on natural capital research. It is using science to figure out how best to manage land for, for three main things. One is biodiversity recovery to stop the really rapid loss of biodiversity that we're seeing in Scotland as elsewhere in the world. The other is to tackle climate change so that we're sequestering and storing carbon in the land as we really need to do. And the third is community prosperity so that the land and land management is benefiting local people and people in general in terms of what it's producing, which of course covers a wide range of things. Um, And the assumption is, the hope is that management that achieves those things is economically viable or becomes more economically viable so that others can do it so it becomes more commonplace and the model is that we experiment with that we figure out good ways to do it we gather evidence of the outcomes and then we can use whatever reward schemes develop to provide an income for ourselves and to advise other people on how best to manage their land for similar outcomes. Oh, that's that's really interesting. And you own and manage three different estates yes, throughout Scotland. Really. Can you tell me a bit more about those and and if they do they need a different sort of approach to how they're how they're researched and how they're managed? 
Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're very varied. Um, the first estate that was bought was Bunloit Estate near Loch Ness, which is where I'm based. Um, that's 500 hectares that goes from the shores of Loch Ness up to about 250 meters, where there are blanket bogs, peat bogs in various conditions, some very healthy, some very degraded, drained, planted on. Um, Bunloit also has a really wide range of native woodlands, conifer plantations, farmland, pastures. Um, so really interesting, varied habitats that we need to do a lot of different things within. Um, but great scope for for maintaining and restoring those habitats. The second estate um, that was bought is Beldorni in Aberdeenshire. That's 350 hectares, um, mostly upland pasture. It was quite heavily grazed for many years. Um, so the 80% of the estate is, is pasture. There's some some uh, broadleaf woodland, some very nice riparian woodland, but most of the tree cover on the estate is, again, commercial plantations. And so there our focus is more on expanding and restoring species-rich grasslands that, that do exist in patches on the estate um, using regenerative agriculture primarily, um, and then also expanding the riparian woodlands and the native woodlands in other areas and combining the two in agroforestry um, management as well. The third estate that we bought this year is Tevialich in Argyll. That's um, almost 1400 hectares, so it's bigger than the others. And it's highly intricate. It's, it's coastal, but the coast there is, is very intricate. So there's lots of inlets, lots of different marine features. And it has this really fascinating combination of marine and terrestrial environments, including lots of wetlands on, on, the, on the land side, but these you know, gradually blending into marine systems. Again, that's been farmed for many years. There's lots of extensive grazing, really nice habitats already in existence. Um, and some of the exciting things there are the, the really species-rich grasslands and the temperate rainforest that exists in patches on the estate and that we're really keen to restore and expand again so that it's a, a more um, a healthier habitat um, that begins to cover a wider area. Yeah, Tavalic is a beautiful part of Scotland. I was really excited to see what you what you do on on the new on the new estate. It's a there's certainly, as you say, an awful lot of habitats there that that all need very different approaches. And yes. and the, the coastal aspect of it's fascinating. On the data collection and the sort of research that happens across the the three sites, have you noticed sort of clear differences in in the sort of biodiversity and, and natural capital do they also need different data sort of collection yeah we have there are um there are obviously big differences in in what is there and that requires different approaches our approach so far has to been has been to to try and cover as much ground as we can you know we're really coming from a, a science perspective and we know scientifically a lot about measuring biodiversity and the different, the many different aspects of biodiversity. But doing that on the ground in an accurate way is is challenging and, you know, not common. So it's um, it is partly experimental. So what we do is we tend to apply a lot of different approaches across habitats, including through management experiments. So we'll do something to one patch of land and monitor the outcome and then see if it's a, a good idea to carry on somewhere else. Um, and so we've been using, you know, range from remote sensing data to really detailed on the ground surveys, environmental DNA, 
um, lots of uh, transects, insect trapping and so on, um, to, to really figure out what's there and how it's changing and which techniques work best in different habitats. Um, and that, yeah, there are, there are big differences, of course, between you know the species-rich grasslands where we can go and learn a lot through quadrats and um, native woodland bird species, um, for example, where we're, we're using more and more acoustic sensors that have proved very you know, resource-effective and, and accurate in finding out what's there. It, it sounds as though the, sort of the, the flexibility in your approach means you can, you can definitely learn from sort of historic data collection and, and then adapt to new, new technology and sort of new data sets that come online. Absolutely, yes. And I think it's really crucial that we do that, you know, singly and, and collectively in a sense. We, we need to pool our resources to, to figure out um, how best to manage land. And uh, we have a lot. There is a, a lot of evidence out there, but we're very keen to contribute to that and to make it as open as possible for others to use. So, so collaboration is definitely something that you, you sort of work on. Yeah. Can you share a bit more about the collaborations and partnerships that, that you've got sort of going on? Yeah, sure. We have a, a lot. We, we work very collaboratively. I guess the first thing to mention, which I think we'll come back to later, is um, partnerships with communities. You know, we work closely with local communities and we learn from them. There's an awful lot of knowledge in these places already that's really important to capture and to, to use when we're determining what to do with the land. Um, we've also... We, we have three scientists in-house. We have lots of, you know, 28 people in the company altogether, a huge range of experience of land management, conservation, forestry, agriculture. Um, and then we collaborate with a range of different organisations, companies, for example, Nature Metrics that process environmental DNA for us, um, agri-carbon we've used for measuring carbon stocks in soil, um, lots of different organisations like that. And then we have a... a large number of research collaborations with different universities. Um, in particular, we have a 10-year research partnership with Oxford University's um, Centre for Leverhulme Centre for Nature Recovery and their Nature-Based Solutions Initiative. And that really gives us the, the sort of independent academic input um, that's so useful and a, a long-term perspective that we can really monitor what's happening for the several years that, that's required for us to see what the outcomes are. Yeah, and that sort of scientifically rigorous output from, from the research is it's probably going to be really helpful when it comes to sort of disseminating that knowledge to the sort of wider sector as well. Exactly, yes. Yeah, it's, um, it is, in that sense, independent, verifiable and transparent information, which is what's needed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, just, just what we need. Um, so over the years, obviously, there's been an awful lot of data collected and, and you've, you've, I know that you've, you've done various reports. Have you sort of got any findings that have really sort of stood out as quite unusual or, or surprising? Yeah, quite a few. I think in a way everything is. You know, it's, um, it's, you don't really come into these places and predict what will, what will be there or what will happen um, accurately. And we're prepared for that. And it's always really interesting to see what comes out. And I, I guess, you know, initially we, we did a lot of monitoring on Bunloit Estate, baselining of Bunloit Estate. And it's a, you know, 
like the others, it's a, a lovely estate that's really diverse, lots of different habitats. It looks very healthy indeed, but perhaps the most surprising thing here was that it's a net carbon emitter. You know, it's uh, the peatlands are degraded. They've been often drained, planted on for commercial timber, and they're emitting something like a thousand tons of CO2 equivalent per year. Even while they're storing still around a million tons, very approximately, but it is emitting a, you know, not insignificant amount of carbon because of past management. Um, and that's not what you expect when you look at a, a fairly natural and really nice piece of land, um, set of habitats. And again, perhaps, you know, different um, surprising outcome in Beldorni is that it was, you know, heavily grazed, quite overgrazed across much of the estate in the past. But what we found doing detailed biodiversity surveys there is that there are these little fragments, patches of really, really important habitat, really species-rich, diverse places, often associated with small wetlands or with patches of native woodland. And so you begin to, to see how the, how the different species and the, the rich habitats hang on in these forgotten corners, you know, and they really have the potential to, to come back under alternative management. That's great. So the natural capital reports that you, you've produced, can you tell me a bit, a bit more about them? Yeah, sure. We've done two so far. We're publishing our third in December this year. The first one was describing the baselining work on Bunloit Estate, um, primarily the carbon and biodiversity outcomes that we've found here. And those included things like the, the peatland emissions and our ideas to, to reverse those. But also in terms of biodiversity, um, particularly exciting were lichen and bryophyte surveys that found um, Bunloit is internationally significant in terms of its lichen populations. And even though we're towards the east coast, you know, we're only half an hour from Inverness, um, we have rainforest communities in our ravines on the estate, the streams that run down to, to Loch Ness. So really diverse, really varied communities across the estate. The, the second report focused on uh, Beldorni and our baselining work there. And again, that was, um, I think, striking for the range of habitats. Um, you know, we have small patches of peat in Beldorni, but also within the grasslands that can look quite um, similar to one another. A lot of variety in terms of species richness and the type of grassland that's there. And then these really nice riparian woodlands and scrub patches um, where we have really high insect abundance, some fantastic bird species. Um, yeah, so the, the sort of variety within a fairly homogeneous looking piece of land was really striking. Yeah, that's that, that's really surprising. It's often one of those things that you assume that just from that sort of face value of it, that you sort of know what's going on. And it's it's always very interesting when you sort of you, know, you get on to the ground level and, and really look at it you, you yes, can be surprised absolutely. and and it, I suppose it's why we should be really careful about assuming lots of things when we look at agricultural or managed landscapes as as we have in Scotland yes that's so really it's really good to kind of know that there can be some surprising things there so in terms of the sort of wider work of, of Highlands rewilding you you sort of already already kind of made reference to the sort of local community aspect of it so we know that engaging with the local community as, as land managers is, is, is vital. Um, but what steps are Highlands Rewilding sort of taking to ensure that there is that strong community involvement? 
Yeah, yeah. We th- we think it's part and parcel of the whole thing. Na- nature recovery and community prosperity, community benefits go go hand in hand, and they need to. You know, we're facing massive challenges in terms of biodiversity loss, climate change, and social socioeconomic deprivation. And the solutions, I think, are one and the same thing for all of those. And so from the start, we've uh, liaised with local communities, but we're trying to formalize that more and more to establish ways of doing that that are transferable and you know that we can show are successful where they are successful so that they can be used elsewhere. And that involves a lot of um, one-on-one meetings, just talking to people, being in the area, um, getting people's opinions and their impressions, but also then public meetings, walk and talk events, um, inviting people in in various groups. And we've, we're going further now, especially so far in the Tevialik estate, in terms of um, having actual structures in place that allow us to work with the community rather than just inform them. Um, and those are things like we developed a, a memorandum of understanding with the Tevialik initiative that represents community interests. And that um, identified a whole set of objectives that were shared between Highlands Rewilding and the local community, things that we could undertake to achieve together. And those are things like um, secure tenancies for the people who live in tenanted houses on the estate, selling land and houses to the community, um, maintaining and increasing the number of jobs on the estate, and um, establishing a, a local management board that's made up of members of the community, a couple of employees of the of Highlands Rewilding, and um, one or two members of the Highlands Rewilding board as well. And then that management board is in place to um, determine how the land is managed effectively um, in liaison with the company. And so this really it has been a, a, a great example of involving people in management and actually allowing them to define what the outcomes are that are important. And we can then go ahead and try and deliver those and monitor them, make sure that we are providing the things that are important. So there's often quite a bit of concern about managing by committee. I suppose it's a sort of natural uh, caution about it. Do you plan on sort of writing up the kind of lessons that you learned from from how this community committee can sort of sort of ha- quite how it works and and the sort of the, the important things to consider when trying to do something sort of like this but elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely, we do. We plan to to write everything up effectively and, and you know learn from all all the experiences and to replicate them in the other estates, which will, of course, be different. You know, this, the context is always different. Um, the management board is, is of course, not, you know, changing the overall objectives of nature recovery and community prosperity. That They, they are effectively shared objectives anyway, so there's, there's no sort of tension over that. But then the day-to-day management decisions, you know, they benefit from being informed by, by local input. Um, and I think if you... You know, if you enter that process in good faith and and are willing to listen and learn, then it's uh, it's a strong benefit. Um, and yeah. it's you know the, the the managing the estate in an economically viable way that also improves all of the social environmental outcomes is basically in everybody's interests. Absolutely, and it's so important to have that that dialogue going from the beginning rather than having a local community sort of unaware as to quite what's going on and and, and how they may fit into it. It's yes, much better exactly. to be up front, isn't it? 
Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So it's it's quite clear that there's sort of a a, sort of a broader application of, of of the work of Highlands Rewilding. It's not just what's going on on the estates. Do you anticipate sort of rolling out this sort of dissemination of, of all your knowledge beyond just the natural capital reports? Yes, we do. Absolutely. We're, we're learning now, you know, across a really wide range of habitats from the coast to upland grazing and Dunloitz woodlands and peat, peatlands. Um, so we have experience now of a fairly good range of Scotland's certainly highland habitats um, and we want to use that to help others effectively and that's part of the business model as well to be able to advise and um, you know be involved in land management moving in this direction and we think that is a, a, a useful contribution that is also a, a viable business proposition. Oh, excellent it's really really good to hear and I look forward to seeing how that how that develops and, uh, and hopefully engaging engaging with it more in the future and and getting more SLE members involved too there's, we know there's there's absolute interest in our in our membership and it's clearly the direction of travel that we're seeing with with policy what sort of things do you think other Scottish farmers and land managers can do on their on their holdings to to sort of start baselining their their biodiversity and, and their natural capital? Yeah, it's a good question. There are lots of things that people can do, and it, it does depend on on why they're doing it. You know, there's a lot that can be done for interest and to inform management. There's the Soil Mentor app that allows you to test soil health and biodiversity easily with lots of online resources that's, you know, available for people to use. Um, we found, as I mentioned, acoustic sensors really accurate and, and straightforward to use for getting a lot of data on birds, for example. Um, they're moving in the direction of insects and bats as well. Data analysis of those can be a bit prohibitive in terms of cost, but there are free tools available as well. Um, so that's becoming more and more feasible and informative. A bit like the, the apps that you can get on your on a smartphone that you know record birdsong and tell you what species they are. Nature Scott are piloting a natural capital assessment for farmers to carry out simple assessments on their farms. And there are lots of other um, tools or approaches that people can apply on their land without a lot of expertise and without spending a lot of money. For example, Plant Life have just developed a, a rainforest condition scoring um, metric or approach that can be done by anybody with a little bit of training um, or, or a bit of reading a, a few pages of instructions beforehand just to give a guide to what's there and what sort of condition it's in and those those things are really you know straightforward to do but invaluable in terms of the information that they give for management yeah that that's really it's really good to know that there are pretty straightforward relatively user friendly and accessible for sort of all technical skill and and inexpensive yeah, um, ways of doing a sort of a, a, a fairly rough and ready baselining to at least start your thinking about what are we lacking or what do we have an abundance of and, and yeah. is that linked to a certain practice that we that we have we know that that's the direction of travel for for policy and starting to think about it now without necessarily committing enormous resource to it yeah. suddenly gets the sort of the wheels turning in terms of future planning Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's really important to be prepared in that sense. Yes, definitely. It's, a, it's certainly something that we're, we're pushing quite a bit is that kind of 
resilience and, and sort of desk study approach but before we make any major changes in response to new policy let's just let's just sit back first and see what we're what we're currently working with yes we don't want any uh, rushed rush decisions do we we know how how challenging it can be to row back on something that you've started implementing absolutely yes and, and likewise it's it can be risky to implement something on the basis of very simple assessments you know because they, they don't tell the whole story and we yes. know that biodiversity especially is very complex um, we are and others are developing ways to simplify that complexity but um, it's not a, a simple it's not a simple measurement it's or a simple prescription of what to do from that point do you kind of favor a measuring species abundance and 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 that's the win or is it is it better to have the the habitats available to them that that species require so build it and they will come approach is which which one would you sort of say is the the preferred assessment tool it's maybe a cop out but i would say a bit of both yeah. um, both are really important you know one on its own can give you um, can mislead you about what's happening and what will happen and also there are other important elements you know there's ecosystem structure integrity in various senses there's the diversity of habitats at larger scales and their connectivity you know there's genetic diversity as well there's all these aspects of biodiversity that actually are very important in terms of what's going to happen in the future um, and the other thing we have to bear in mind is that climate is changing you know we're seeing those effects already they will only get stronger and that will have big impacts and so what we have today and what we expect might not be relevant in a fairly small number of years so we have to also take account of ecosystems ability and likelihood of changing over the coming years and are you are you doing it now or are you considering doing it in the future sort of building in that future climate model aspect to highland re- highlands rewildings planning yes absolutely we're doing it in a in a fairly informal way just now but we do plan to build it in more and more formally my background is in um, climate and land use change research um, so i've done a lot of modeling of land use change in particular how it will be affected by climate change and how it can in turn affect climate change and, and limit it potentially and so we're really aware of the interactions between land management and, and climate and biodiversity change they affect one another and you know it's it's essential to take account of the ways that they do that otherwise we'll go off on, on the wrong path and not not get what we expect yes you're absolutely right that yeah climate's going to affect what it is we're, we're sort of managing, but also the conditions in which we're trying to manage things. It's yeah. it's one of those sort of self-perpetuating issues, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And it, it really brings home the necessity of engaging with it. You know, we can't just hope it will go away or assume no. things will work out. It's it's happening and we can we can tackle it or we can uh, suffer from it. Yeah, and the, the longer we put off responding to it or, or preparing for the impact of it and mitigating as much as we can that the harder it's going to be yeah indeed and also i mean it's important to remember that there are win-wins available you know we can we can sequester carbon more effectively and lock up the stores that we have we can certainly improve biodiversity outcomes from the level that we're at at the moment and in doing that we can provide social environmental economic benefits you know there, there are good routes forward available to us yes and as, as someone with a uh, 
a nerdy passion for soil there's also so much we can do with with soil to, to both increase yeah. its biodiversity and and its water holding capacity absolutely yes i mean soil is a bit of a new frontier isn't it but there's a huge know, amount to, <laughs> to do yeah it's, it's always always a bit sad that it's taken us so long to start paying attention to soil but we're hit we're there now and it's um yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's an incredible sort of option for so many of our solutions but it, it certainly sounds like Highlands Rewilding has has come a long way and, and, and definitely has clear plans for, for what it's doing in the future. It's It's been fascinating to listen to the various sort of projects that are, that are going on and, and the, the way you're sort of learning from the data that you're collecting and the, and the research that's going on. Really looking forward to seeing how this works in the future and reading the next Natural Capital report. So thank you so much for your time, Callum. It's been really interesting. Yeah, thank you very much indeed, Eleanor. Thanks to Eleanor and Callum for sharing this conversation with us. If you're interested in finding out more about Highlands Rewilding, links are available in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you found this episode interesting. If you have any questions, please remember that Scottish Land and Estates members have access to dedicated support, information and advice over the phone and via email from our policy team. Please feel free to get in touch. And if you aren't already subscribed to Scotland Matters, now is the perfect time to do so. In addition to being able to listen on the SLE website, you can find us on your streaming platform of choice. And although there's not much left of 2023 now, we still have several episodes for you to look forward to, including a discussion featuring the team at Narrow Associates and our yearly roundup. I hope you'll join us again next time.